The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, John, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the sharp drop in rates, the steep rise in tech, how long that winning trade is likely to last for your money. We'll debate that today with our investment committee. Joining me for the hour today, Jenny Harrington, Steve Weiss, John and Jim Labenthal, Joe Terranova. Good to see everybody today. We'll begin, as we always do, a look at stocks and the 10-year, because that remains a very big story. The 10-year was below 130 just a short time ago. Stocks have been all over the place for the most part. Dow's holding on to a 57-point gain. You see the S&P and the NASDAQ are in the green as well. You do have several big growth names today hitting new highs. Apple getting within a couple of bucks of that new milestone. But Weiss, I want to start with you, and I want to stay on this rate story. I think it's the, it's the story of the market, clearly. Um, and you got caught the wrong way in a trade that you had, which you are now out of. Tell us. Yeah, TBT, which is the ultra, which means that it's doubling uh, the size of the position using leverage, essentially. And I was betting on short uh, treasuries, specifically around the 20 year. Um, didn't work out. As you may recall, when I went into the trade, I said, look, I think yields are around 150, 1.5, 1.55. I said, look, my downside's 1.4, and my upside in terms of rates, which means bonds would, of course, decline for rates to go higher, for yields to go higher, was about 2% by the end of the year. And when it got to 1.4, I said, okay, I'm there, I can hold it. But then it started trading down more, and particularly being in these altered, these leveraged ETFs, which I never do, but did here, because the moves in, in Treasury is so minuscule, uh, you get caught. You can't catch up. So I can't tell you that I specifically understand why yields are where they are. I can't tell you anybody's got a good reason. So when I don't know what's going on, I tend to sit back, get out of the trade and examine it. And I don't mind coming back in. And that's what I'll do here. And in fact, the world could change completely at 201 because we get FOMC minutes at two o'clock. And if they have even a more hawkish dialogue than what we heard in the press conference, I think you'll see the reversal in yields. You know, Joe, I, I talked to somebody, a, a big investor earlier today on this issue of w- what's the deal with rates? Why do they keep moving lower? The market, as Steve said, seems to be confused um, what to make of, of that move. This person told me straight up, just just too much liquidity in the system. It's about nothing else than that. It's not about peak growth, because if you look, let's just say, for argument's sake, at inventories, which are at a five-year low, there's going to be a massive ramp on inventories into the fourth quarter. You're going to have a big economic Mm -hmm. boom still to come because of that drop in inventories. Don't make too much of it. Straight, simple. Long stocks, short rates. You're going to have a boom. It's all about liquidity and nothing else. Keep it simple. And I don't have to worry about inflation in that conversation as well, I guess. But 
I think now. Steve is not uh, now. indicative. That was, no. part of the, that was part of the conversation, exactly. too. And that the market doesn't care about any of that in the future. It cares about the here and now. Correct. And I also think in that conversation, we're still short 6.7 million jobs from the pandemic. And the question has to be, will you get all of those jobs back? And I'm not sure that you will. But I think, Scott, Steve is indicative of the entire positioning collectively for fixed income. Find me someone who really believed that rates were going to fall to 1.30 and didn't think rates were going to skyrocket above 1.7 towards 2%. So I think a lot of this is about positioning. I agree with you. I think a lot of this is about liquidity. And I think overall, this is just a return to where the economy really is centered. This economy is an intangible asset economy. It's fixated on growth. Growth is 40% of the S&P 500. That's never going to change. And to think that you should be moving away from these growth businesses is foolish. And I think that's what a lot of institutional money has done. The evidence is there and the data to support it. Institutional flows in the month of April and May took positioning to mega cap technology and reduced it below benchmark. And now with rates moving lower aggressively since June 17th, they're raising those allocations once again. And I think that's the right strategy. Let's just say, Jenny, that that view is correct, that this is about nothing but excess liquidity. And that's a bullish sign because the liquidity is not going anywhere in the very near future. The economy hasn't peaked. I gave you the, the stat on inventories. We're still yet to fully ramp and fully get out this summer and all, and all of that. You, you believe that view? I do, but you made a really key point, which is the liquidity isn't going anywhere in the very near term. But the liquidity is going somewhere in the longer term. And what we know from a couple weeks ago from the Fed meeting was that they started to talk about raising interest rates. We all know that that was their way of paving the road to talking about tapering. And the collective wisdom right now is that tapering will probably start in November, December, maybe January. And once they start, once the Fed starts to taper, that will start to take some of this excess liquidity out of the market. That's a long way So I'm with you 100%. It is. Well, it is and it isn't. It, right? is. it depends in, on who in, you are. For in me, market six, terms, six, it six, is. Right. In market terms, it is. That, okay. That's down the road. That, that may be more than six months away. Yeah. So we're going to have a fit now a because us- we're wondering whether we're at peak growth or whether they're going to take the punch bowl away sometime soon. I mean, rates are telling you and the move in rates is pretty definitive in, in its view that the Fed's not going anywhere tomorrow or the next day or the week or month after. No, but there are a lot of long-term investors out there. So there's the trading crew who's shorter term. There's the long-term investors, more like me. And a lot of the people who watch the program hold their, hold their stocks for a long, long time, too, or hold their bonds for a long time. And so I think we do need to look six to nine months out. And I do think in nine months, probably that liquidity isn't going to be the same level that it is now. So I think at that point, you're going to have two factors that could start to see, start to force rates up. One, where we've been talking about this inflation, right? Is it temporary? Is it sustained? Let's just, for argument's sake, say some amount of it is going to be sustained. So you might have some inflation that sticks around. That's going to put a little pressure on rates to move up. And if the Fed does start to taper and starts to take some of that liquidity out, that reduces the demand for the fixed income assets as the demand for those decrease, the, the supply stays the same, and the prices should start to come up. 
sorry, come down, rates should start to go up after that. So I'm actually looking further out, particularly when I think about what's the, what are the holdings in my portfolio and financials and thinking about what's going on there. And I do think that the market does look out six to nine months, sometimes even a year. So I think ultimately we have higher rates in the long run, and I think the market responds to that. But we know it's always a push and pull between so, what's going yeah. on today and looking out further. So it's, it's like, um, you know, John, it's like a now and later market. Right. Yes. Okay. We like Always. to say we like mm-hmm. to say the market is a, a discount, a discounting mechanism, as, as, as Jenny said. Yes, it typically looks six to nine months down the road. Not every single time, not every single moment. Nope. And right now, with rates going down, you can't tell me that the market is looking that far down the road, because if it was and it believed that inflation was going to go up and the Fed was going to start to taper and then the Fed was going to start to raise rates and you'd have all these issues, rates would not be under 130. Right. Right. And uh, Scott, there was a big bet placed at the end of last week, um, basically, that rates would go significantly lower. Uh, the TBT uh, Stephen was talking about uh, the TBT. I'm talking about uh, the TLT. And the TLT, which is the 20-year rate um, ETF, was as high as 157 at the start of the year, crashed down to 133 when we pushed up to that 175 on the 10-year. Um, and then, since then, we've been working our way back up. And last week, it was 144 uh, for that uh, TLT. And now they've pushed it up to 148.55 uh, just before we came on air. That bet, by the way, was a huge bet at the 147 strike out till October, Scott. So that would play into what Jenny and Joe uh, and even Stephen have said as far as, you know, today's Fed move may or may not be um, market moving for very long. But there are people that believe, pretty serious people, because, again, there were 30,000 of these upside calls that were purchased that rates continue lower until probably October, they could always change, just as you said, Scott, at any moment that could change. But right now, that pretty big trade that was put on says rates lower into October and then perhaps a rollover. And we see a similar sort of situation to what we saw. We hope we don't see it as fast. But during that uh, February to March time frame, when we saw rates jump to that 175 level. Joe, you got a comment on that, I'm told? I do. A very scary premise, Scott. Do you think the liquidity ever goes away? Because it hasn't gone away since 2008. 2008, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet grew 100 percent to 2009. That liquidity has never gone away. It's only grown. Scott, in the last 10 years, the U.S. 10-year Treasury has spent 90 days out of those 10 years above 3 percent. So maybe the real question is, is that this liquidity that we keep focusing on, that's just part of the normalcy of the capital markets. And investors are going to have to get used to that. And that's going to create this ever chase for yield. Okay, then that tells me why Farmer Jim would I ever want to be long the value trade? Because on a day where you've got Bank of America and the flow show, their thing over there saying that they think the growth move is a head fake, Maybe once again, the value move is the head fake. And because of what Joe just said, growth is where you want to be. And you, my friend, are overweight value. Maybe you're on the wrong track, about ready to get run over by some of these growth stocks, Jim. 
Yeah, I, I feel very good about my positioning, Scott, and, and here's why. Taking the conversation, just where we were in the prior 10 minutes is a question whether rates are where they are because of growth scares, fundamental reasons, or technical reasons. I'm going to solidly say technical slash liquidity for one key telling reason, which is that it doesn't matter whether economic statistics have come in hot or cold. For the last six weeks, whatever they've come in, rates have gone down. You get a hot CPI number, rates go down. You get a good jobs number, rates go down. You get a bad jobs number, rates go down. So to me, this rate level conundrum is not about the economy. This is an economy that is still growing. This is about technical factors like liquidity. But then to your question, okay, I'll dance with you. Look at where the value trade has gone over the last, say, month. I mean, every single one of those sectors is in correction. I don't care whether it's energy, financials, industrials. They've all corrected. This is absolutely the wrong time to give up on the value trade if you accept my premise that the reason rates are low are purely technical, not because of growth scares. And I'll just sum this up by going to where you started the program. Not only think about inventory restocking, think about supply chain onshoring. Think about potentially infrastructure coming. These are all reasons to stay long the value sector, as well as growth at a reasonable price. But I'm definitely not giving up on value. Jim, you, you said purely technical just now. It's not purely technical. Yes. Right. You're awash in liquidity. Right. That has more to do than anything with the fact that rates at least are where they are or continue to move a little bit lower. There's there's nobody is taking the or turning off the spigot anytime soon. Right. It's been full blast. As Joe said, that since, so wait, yep. that's, is that, well, yeah. are you saying that that's technical? I, yes, I am. You saying can say that's it's artificial. Technical. That's not fundamental. You can say it's artificial. Well, it's not. It's listen. It's not fundamental. This is not an economy that needs this liquidity right now, but it's getting it. And by the way, let me just flesh this out. You've given me time to do it. There are other technical factors at play here. Consider the fact that we're about one and a half months past the tax filing deadline. The Treasury is awash in cash right now. That means it's not issuing Treasuries as much as it does during other times of the year, i.e. the supply is down. Oh, by the way, rates are low in Europe. That's a technical factor that's tethering our rates lower. But let me really strongly make this point. This is not a growth scare. This is not a fundamental growth scare. Not with inventory restocking, supply chain onshoring, economic reopening, infrastructure spending. I right. will not buy that this is a fundamental growth scare. Nor will the investors, nor will the person I spoke with earlier today who scoffed at that notion and, and said absolutely not. It's plain and simple about Steve Weiss, all of the liquidity that's in the market. Joe, I'll come back to you in a second. My, my point is, is regardless of, of what the deal is or why rates are where they are, they are where they are, right? So we got to make money based on where they are. And over the last month, where's the money been made? It's been made in tech, right? Whether it's big tech, like Amazon up 15% over the past month, Apple's up 14%, Microsoft 10, Alphabet 5, Facebook 5. Now, those stocks, Alphabet and Facebook, had been moving ahead of some of the other bank stocks. Well, why would I want to get off that train anytime soon if I think, Steve, that rates are going to remain at worst where they are? Maybe they go even a little bit lower. And I could go through a number of the so-called other high-growth stocks, like the ARC names, which are all up even more substantially so over the over the last month. Why would I want to get off that and start playing the value stock stuff again? Well, I don't think you necessarily want to get off the first group of stocks you mentioned, which is why I own them all. 
uh, adding to the liquidity that's coming in. Uh, Japan apparently is going to come out with another $180 billion in stimulus before their election next couple of months. So I think if you recall what Dave said, Dave Tepper, uh, his thought that they are seeing rates go down is because Japan is doing a lot of buying. I guarantee you they're doing even more buying in expectation of this package. But here's where I'd get off the train. Look, I've been dead wrong on the snowflakes in terms of I had thought their best days were behind them. And here the stock's up, what, 20 percent in that period of time, far outpacing the gains in Apple and some of the others. But to me, those are transitory gains in those real high flyers because rates will go back up. And by the way, you can't tell me that you can justify the move in rates lower the momentous move from the 1.75 that we hit because there's so much more liquidity than there was at that time. And in fact, you're now looking at rates going higher and, and the tapering occurring, no, no, which no. I believe will occur at the next no, meeting no. or later. It's, like, it's, so, it's not like there's more liquidity, but when, when rates had moved up to 175 or, or, or whatever the, the peak was, it was because, the, it was because it, the market didn't believe the Fed. The market didn't believe that the Fed was going to get it right. The market at that moment didn't believe that inflation was transitory. I think Powell and company have done a fairly good job in convincing the market that, in fact, it is. Look at the rollover in lumber and copper and some of the other commodities. Right. Well, the market didn't believe it. I I believe it. And right. I I believed it and had that debate with Professor Siegel where, where I said impolitely, perhaps, that he was dead wrong. I still believe it's transitory. But I still believe that you're going to see the Fed embark upon a tightening because you have excesses. If you remember what happened with Greenspan going both ways, that you can get excesses on rates being too low that will cause a bubble. That alone may be enough to get the Fed to tighten. I don't know. Joe, you wanted to say what? I did. I want to ask Jimmy. I mean, stocks look forward six to nine months. If we're looking forward and we're thinking about the economy, Jim's talking about the economic growth. The question is, is that economic growth sustainable? Is it organic? What happens when the fiscal spending goes away? What happens when we raise taxes? Where's the organic economic growth going to come from? That's a great question, Joe. That's a great question. And the answer won't be known right now, but the probable answer, probable answer is, look at where corporate profits are. Look at how high they're growing. Now, what do companies do when they have high corporate profits? Sure, they give some of it back to shareholders, but they reinvest in their businesses. They build new factories. They buy new technology. They hire people. That's the virtuous cycle of an early economic expansion. Stress the word early. Later in the economic expansion, it gets to be too much. That's not where we are right now. Now we're in the virtuous part of the cycle where profits get recycled back into the economy. You do not want to get out of the value trade at this point in the economic cycle. I'm not saying, by the way, to give up on growth. And Scott, you know I own Apple and Qualcomm and Microsoft. You know I'm happy with them. But if you think that this is the time to go overweight growth, I'm going to tell you, I don't think that's the right call. Okay. Jenny? You know, Europe hasn't opened yet, so Scott. I'm, I'm going to play oh, hold, hold, on, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Jenny, I'm go first. I'm jumping out of my skin to say this. Okay, go Thanks. ahead. Thanks. So I read an interesting article this morning talking about one of the um, strategists at Morgan Stanley. And what she's advising clients, and I think this is really well phrased, she's advising clients to neutralize extreme style bias. And what I think that means is Joe and Jim need to meet, ha- Joe and I think Jim's already halfway there. We need to meet halfway. 
And what she's saying, neutralize extreme style biases, it's not all value. It's not all growth. It's somewhere in the middle. And so maybe it's a stock picker's market. So you can look at things and you can look at, say, Toyota Motors, for example, which has 9, 10% growth ahead of it for the next three years. It's trading at 11 times. You can look at Apple, which I know you love, Jim. That's got like 3, 5% growth ahead of it. They both have growth. Take your pick. One's a growth stock, one's a value stock. I think we need to acknowledge that the market's different this year than it was last year. Last year it was all about extremities, right? It was extreme stories, extreme styles, extreme sectors. We're not there anymore. We're in a normalizing period where things aren't paid forward, they aren't paid backwards. Earnings are going to be normal. Earnings are going to be predictable. With that predictability comes comes reasonable valuation. And as we can look at companies and say, yeah, this deserves to be trading at 12 times. This deserves to be trading at 22 times. You don't need to be at the extremes. You don't need to be all value or all growth. Find what works for you in the middle. But I think it's important not to just dig in on any one camp and to know that there's money to be made all across the board. We can maybe distill this whole thing down, Jim, to you you tell me, Jim Labenthal, why I would want to be in a money center bank, right, to just play your value, Thing. Don't get out of value, your sure. overweight value. Why I would rather be there today than PayPal or Square. Okay. Make the case. So, yeah, I'll make the, listen, I'll make the case in an absolute sense. You want to take Citigroup. Go ahead and take Citigroup, okay? Off 15% from its recent high. Again, early in an economic expansion. What do you think is going to happen? Loan demand is going to go up, particularly as we keep building things, whether it's semiconductor plants or new roads, loan demand goes up. Loan losses come down and continue to get reversed out. And probably the biggest factor, they are buying back shares hand over fist, well below book value right now. Do, let them do that all day long. I, you know, I can't say that tomorrow. I can't say that next week is when these stocks go up. But I feel very comfortable being in them right now, Scott. Very comfortable. And I'm just going to have to wait. I'll take some mud. That's okay. We have fun doing it. But I- I'm going to be right in the end, buddy. Oh, okay. We'll see. John Ajarian, is he going to be right in the end or wrong? <laughs> well, uh, if, on a long enough timeline, Jim's always right. <laughs> Well, I'm not talking a thousand years from now, Doc. I'm not talking a thousand years from now. But you've got J.P. Morgan shares. You've got Bank of America calls. You've got Cap One calls. You've got Key Corp calls. You've got Wells Fargo calls. You're in the XLF. I mean, mm-hmm. you're right in the in the center here. Yep, I am, and I'm extremely overweight on the tech and energy plays as well, Scott. Um, so the banks, I don't think you punt them out here um, with these yields down around 130 on that 10-year that we've been citing. I think you hold on to them. J.P. Morgan next week, Tuesday, obviously you get a lot of uh, input from them on exactly how the consumer is doing, how is their uh, trading doing and so forth, not just the loan portfolio. Um, and today's Fed number, that's, or uh, today's Fed release is going to be important, but J.P. Morgan's, to me, is more important next week. And then we're in the earnings season. So I think a lot of these companies that you named that I have, Bank America, Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan, Capital One, I think they all perform well. I don't know that they really outperform, Scott, but they're a little bit of a hedge to my portfolio if we start running to the upside on rates. I don't anticipate that. I think that rates stay lower. And as I've already cited with that TLT, I think rates perhaps um, hold or go lower in the short term. But longer term, I don't think rates are going anywhere but higher. Uh, it's just a question of when, Scott. Yeah, no, I, I don't think 
people would disagree with you, but the question of when, John Najarian, is, is the most important question. Yep. And if it's not going to be for a, a while yet, then what are we just going to do? We're, we're going we're gonna to pout just for the sake of we know that they're going up eventually, so we're just not going to play the game, right? You just, I mean, no, John, you just can't tell stocks. me, John, you're you just can't. You're going to be in tech. Yeah, you, you just can't tell me, and I don't mean you specifically, I'm saying broadly, you can't tell me that if mm-hmm. rates remain where they are or even move lower, that growth isn't going to outperform. I just don't know how that would possibly happen. Oh. You're right, and growth is going to outperform in a big way, I think, in the second half of this year. Um, And, you know, you've already seen it coming in Apple. We've talked about the iPhone 13 and some of the other reasons. I think they're, you know, quite frankly, the App Store is going to be just killing it, Scott. Um, And so I think there's a lot of reasons to love tech. You had uh, Amazon hit a record yesterday. Google hit a record yesterday. Mm -hmm. You may have just days away from Apple hitting another record. I mean, it hit that record back in January. We could be going right back to that. I believe we are. Um, But like I say, a little bit of a hedge. I've got those banks. I think they're all solid. They just got that wellness test uh, that they basically could return more money to shareholders if they want to give money to perfect strangers. Um, And I think that is one more reason to hold on to those stocks, not dump them at a 130 in the 10 year, Scott. No, but if you know you keep making the case, people do of you know growth at a reasonable price. It's they go back to the mega cap techs, the the Apples, the Amazons, Microsoft, Facebook, the ones that continue with you know to be deemed inexpensive and continue to hit new highs. As do names like Shopify, Cloudflare, CrowdStrike, Zscaler, DocuSign, all new intraday highs today. Tesla's up six and a half percent over the last month. Has us wondering whether the ultimate growth stock is ready to speed ahead even more. CNBC's Phil LeBeau joins us now, knows Tesla and that story as well as anybody. Phil, I mean, they just had a delivery number and maybe historically that could be decent for shares. What are you going to tell us? It tends to be one of those bell ringing moments where investors can count on at least the two weeks after a deliveries report for the shares to move higher. We had the data team crunch the numbers going back to 2019, looking at the two weeks before a delivery report and the two weeks afterwards. And it turns out that the two weeks after the announcement, look at the average gain is just over 16 percent. Remember that Tesla reported its earnings or excuse me, its Q2 deliveries on Friday. So what has the stock done since Friday morning when the delivery announcement came out? Not a whole heck of a lot. Down, what, three and a half, four and a half percent. Uh, but it's early. It could be that this stock ends up being up 10, 15 percent when we're two weeks from that announcement. As you take a look at Tesla's annual deliveries, remember the company has been on a steady trajectory over the last several years. The expectation for this year, after reporting more than 200,000 in Q2, is that the company will deliver more than 800,000 this year. We'll find out what the Q2 financials turn out to be probably later this month. That is the expectation after reporting deliveries that were roughly in line with expectations on Friday. So, Scott, when you look at shares of Tesla, I get this question all the time from people. Mm -hmm. Will it move up before a report? Will it move down? At least when it comes to deliveries, historically, it tends to move up in the two weeks after a delivery report. All right. Good stuff from you, Phil. Good stuff from our data team. We appreciate you both. Thank you very much. Joe Terranova bought Tesla on June 22nd, $628. Has a stop there. That's a 200-day moving average. What do you think about Phil's report? 
Well, I like Phil's uh, comments there, and clearly we were underway towards $700. We had about a 10% gain on Tesla. It's pulled back here in the last couple of days, somewhat puzzling because it should be performing well in this growth-oriented environment. But as you mentioned, the stop is in place. You've got a great point of reference at 628. If you want to risk a little bit more, you go down to the mid-June lows at 595. I'm going to stay with the position, and hopefully Phil's going to be right on the expectation All right. Speaking of positions you guys are in, you are making a lot of moves. You guys are. We're going to detail those when we come back. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit ODFL.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash report. That is LinkedIn.com slash Halftime Report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to LinkedIn.com slash Halftime Report and get started. Okay, let's go through some of the moves our gang's making today. You guys have some pretty decent moves to, uh, to talk about. Jenny, I come to you first. You bought Clearway Energy, that's C-W-E-N. Nice dividend yield. Tell us. Thanks. So this is a company that's in the power generation space, and 83% of their power generation comes from renewables, wind and solar. They have the, ten, the 11th largest wind solar field, the 9th largest, um, sorry, the 11th largest wind field, the 9th largest solar field, and it's not, even though it's in a hot area, it's not going to be a hot stock. It's going to be a stock that gives you a solid 5 plus percent dividend yield that should grow in the 5 to 8 percent range for the foreseeable future with... Um, with a really solid balance sheet behind it, a great management team behind it. It fits well within the portfolio that I manage, which has an objective of delivering a 5% plus yield and growth on top of that. And this goes back to my earlier comments, which is there are a lot of ways to skin a cat. There are a lot of different ways to make money. This is the way that I'm comfortable making money. So we added Clearway, very excited about the investment. But look at it like a single or a double, not a home run. I hear you. I mean, look, the stock's down 18% year to date. Mm -hmm. So perhaps now is the time to, to go ahead and pounce on that. Farmer Jim, you bought AbbVie. Tell me why. Yeah, so I'm slowly building out a pharmaceutical portion of my portfolio. It's been it's been a hole in the portfolio, uh, and that's been okay because pharmaceuticals, as we know, have underperformed over the last few years. 
But, but it seems like the Democrats don't have their eye on the ball of price control anymore. There's other things they're fighting about, fighting for. And uh, I, I think this is a good time to get invested. So I added Bristol-Myers the other day. I'm picking up AbbVie, a great franchise at a, at a good price here. And, of course, the demographics of aging developed markets really puts the wind in the sail of pharmaceutical development. So just building out that sector of the portfolio. All right. Thank you for that. Joe Terranova, you bought Honeywell again, right? Because you owned this last year at some point, or at least in the last couple of years. I, I, I sure did. And part of that Honeywell trade was to sell out of energy. That really was the bigger story. Um, Scott, if you go back to May 21st, the price of oil spot is up 15%. The price of the XLE is unchanged. So an investor, an energy equity investor, is not capturing the positive performance that you're witnessing for the spot price of oil. That's concerning to me. I really want nothing to do with energy here at that price if you're not capturing that performance. President Biden's administration is finally engaged in the conversation for the need to be more barrels and speaking to OPEC Plus. What did I want it to do with that? I wanted to make sure that I stayed to Jenny's point on the value side of the strategy. I found an industrial, but I'm going high up in quality here. That's so incredibly important. Stay high up in quality. Honeywell provides that for you. Very strong balance sheet, and it checks the box on the need to find a value-oriented equity name. Okay, so you sold Suncor because you want to be out of energy, right? I mean, you, you just dissed energy pretty hard. Jim Leventhal, weren't you the one who just told I me? Did. You just told me a few moments ago you love energy, right? Me too. Uh, it's, it's one of several sectors in value that I that I am very fond of. Tell yes. Joe why he's wrong. Then. You see my Kinder Morgan in my marathon. Tell, tell him why he's wrong. Yeah. Okay, okay I'm, I, I will. It's simple. I'm going to repeat myself, guys. We're, we're we're losing sight of this. We're early in an economic expansion. And Scott, you said something prescient earlier. It's a long way. Whenever the Fed does start to taper or raise interest rates, it's a long way away. And during that time, this economy is going to continue to expand. People are going to fly. People are going to drive. Cruise ships are going to set sail. There's going to be demand for energy. We're building plants. I could go on and on, but you already heard it. This is an early economic expansion. Okay. I much wanted to give you a chance to rebut that. Speaking of you, Joe, so you sold Nike on June 21st. Stock's up 23% since then. The best, performer, best yep. performing would, Dow component over the past month. And I'd do it again. Why? I, I'm, I'm, I had a process. Had a process, followed the process. The stock had trust been pulling the process. back. I've owned, uh, you trust Nike. the process? Trust the process. I sure do. How'd that work uh, out? I own stocky. Uh, I own Nike since uh, 2020. I had a very good return on it. The stock was not performing well. It was pulling back. It was below 130. And I was concerned about what the analyst community was going to say on the conference call to John Donahoe as it related right. to the Chinese and some of the concerns there uh, regarding social practices. That was my concern. I would do it all over again. And quite candidly, Scott, the analysts didn't even go there. Okay. Didn't even address the issue. At least you weren't afraid to shoot in the fourth quarter, Joe. I'll give you that. All right, Steve Weiss, <laughs> L Brands. You sold L Brands. Tell us why. Yeah, first, first of all, to John's point, I'm assuming Jim bought Abby to get a discount on their extended life products to see his thesis play out. Uh, in terms of L Brands, <laughs> I bought that two weeks ago. 
the, the stocks moved up about 13%. It's a great gain. Uh, I think everybody knows what I know, which is not uncommon, by the way, which is that it'll be a more valuable company as it splits into. It's ahead of itself, looking to take off some exposure. It, was, uh, it got far in advance of where I thought it would be two weeks later. Hey, why'd you sell Micron? You know, Micron I went to as a trade, if you recall, and the range of trading it was 80 to 100. I thought they came out with a pretty good quarter, uh, but it was disappointing to the street. So the trade wasn't working out. This is not a market where you can stay in trades long term. You know, and by that I mean week, weeks, whatever. So had a stop on it. I moved my stop up. The stock moved up, made a little money on it, got out. Maybe I'll come back. It's a great 5G play. But it's still treated as a commodity stock, which it isn't. You sold the XLE, too. You say that was a trade, too. Is everything that goes down just a yeah, trade? Yeah, it was, if you call it. <laughs> well, I lost money in the XLE. So, uh, no. I'm only channeling what the viewers are thinking, Steve Weiss. You know it. You know it. <laughs> I'm feeling them right now. No, I lost money. I lost money in XLE. Not as much money as I'm losing in the trade I put on to follow Jimmy in BA. Uh, but that's a different story. He and I will have it out off air behind a building somewhere. But, uh, yeah, look, I bought it because I thought the OPEC meeting would be positive. It would get energy prices up. The opposite happened, even though it should have been bullish for oil. So I got out. Okay, you no, recall, I, I'm not a fundamental investor in oil. I hear you. Uh, I got one more on my list, but I got to bounce for a minute. I'm going to get back to you later on, uh, on what you did with uh, another Dow component. But we'll wait for that. Let's get the headlines now with Rahel Solomon. Hi, Scott. Here's our CNBC News update at this hour. Elsa has come ashore as a tropical storm packing sustained winds of 65 miles per hour. The storm made landfall in lightly populated Taylor County. Tropical storm warnings are still in effect in parts of northern Florida. And tropical storm alerts have been extended all the way north to New Jersey. A federal judge has ruled that the U.S. Air Force is mostly responsible for a former serviceman killing more than two dozen people at a Texas church in 2017. The judge says that the Air Force failed to submit the shooter's criminal history to a database which should have prevented him from buying firearms. President Biden condemning the, quote, horrific assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moise. Authorities in Haiti have closed the international airport and also declared a state of siege. And tonight on the news, more on the international reaction and who will lead the country going forward. And finally, that ship that blocked the Suez Canal for nearly a week has now been given the green light to leave. Egypt had ordered the ship to be held until compensation for the accident could be negotiated. It took three months. More Halftime Report when we come back. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. And welcome back to Halftime. I'm Frank Holland. This is your ETF Edge. The sea of SPACs, they may have quieted down lately, but the IPO market is off to a sizzling start to summer, coming off the busiest week in almost two decades. But now China's cybersecurity crackdown is giving investors serious pause when it comes to owning hot new issues like ride-hailing giant Didi. Those shares down about 5%. Joining me now is Dave Nodig, director of research at ETF Trends, and Kathleen Smith. She's the chairman and co-founder of Renaissance Capital. 
Didi, set to enter the Renaissance Capital IT, IPO ETF tomorrow. Kathleen, going to you first. How are you feeling about the ripple effects of China's crackdown on the U, U.S. IPO market? And how do you see that playing out for the rest of this year? Well, the IPO market's been on fire. We're at record-setting levels, and maybe there hasn't been enough time for investors to do due diligence. I think we're in for a little bit of a cooling off, uh, triggered somewhat by what's happening with Didi and some of the other Chinese IPOs. So um, the first day pops have been very high, but the aftermarket returns have faded because it's so high to achieve a return after that first day. So this is good. A little bit of fear in the market will help. Maybe not the issuers, but investors such as our ETF will benefit when prices are a little bit more reasonable in the IPO market. Yeah, Kathleen, I think there's a, there are a lot more than just a little bit of fear in the market. Dave, going over to you, you're tracking inflows into growth funds that are actually six times higher than value funds this year. Do you see investors losing their taste for IPOs and big tech? I don't think we're going to lose our taste for IPOs. I mean, I, I, Kathleen won't say it, but I'll say it for her, right? The IPO fund she's running has doubled the S&P over the last two years. So clearly people are still interested in high growth companies. I actually see what we've seen with Didi as a bit of a validation for approaching IPOs as a basket and as a basket with rules, right? It's important to note that Didi didn't come into these funds on day one. There's a bit of a cooling off period. And in this case, that's really going to work for investors. So the watchword for everybody should really just be be careful, stay diversified. All right, Kathleen and Dave, we thank you both for being here. And we're continuing this conversation live at 1 p.m. Eastern time on ETFedge.cnbc.com. Reeves Asset Management CEO Jay Rame is going to join us for his unique perspective on U.S. infrastructure. Don't miss it. Halftime, back right after this. Follow the story of China stocks. They're lower again today on fears of even more crackdowns. You know it by now. Didi, Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu, so many more are down substantially uh, again today. Uh, maybe not quite as bad as yesterday for some, like Didi, which was down more than 20 percent. Doc, you know, I thought it was interesting. You bought FXI puts yesterday. Is that right? That's the China large cap ETF. Exactly, Scott. And uh, we, we were just following the smart money into that one, Scott. There have been a lot of folks that have been betting on the likes of Didi, uh, Tencent, Baidu, you named them, JD, uh, rebounding sometime between now and September. Those bets have been placed in the last two weeks, and for the most part, they've been all wrong. Didi, of course, does not have options yet, but the rest of those that I mentioned do, and they're very active. To see a broad market ETF get as much action in these puts, Scott, normal activity is about 37,000 contracts in the FXI puts, um, yesterday, it traded 175,000 um, and a lot of activity at the 44, 43 and 42 strikes out in August. So people are betting that perhaps this swoon carries lower. And yet there are people willing to bet on some of those individual names um, past that, Scott. But I wanted to own some of those FXI puts. Uh, it's down from 55 or so, which was the high of the year, down to 44 here. And maybe we plumb lower and even break 40 on this move. That's what I was betting on. Interesting. OK, thanks for telling us about that. John, John's coming back to with unusual activity. Sure. We've got Steve Weiss's other move to get to. We'll do that right after this. All right, Weiss, I mentioned I, I wanted to get to another uh, trade of yours I, I found pretty interesting. You trim Boeing. You want to tell us why? And, um, you know, at risk of making Jim sure. upset? <laughs> uh, 
Well, that's the prize. That's not the risk. Um, look, I went into I went into Boeing's trade. You know, t- t- typically the stock has a bounce. The momentum was there, and I thought the market misunderstood the the UAL order, but it didn't. Apparently, you got it right. I got it wrong. So the problem with using too many stops on Boeing for your entire position is that it can move four or five dollar increments, and then you're out when you should be buying it. So I did get stopped out of uh, most of my position, or three quarters of it. But my cost of going in was 241.68 exactly. So down here 232, uh, you know, it's hurting somewhat. But I do think it bounces off this. I think at this point it's overdone momentum to the downside. I'm looking to add. Uh, my first indication to add would be if Jim sold everything. My second indication, <laughs> if I don't get that, would be if it just finally stabilizes and starts right. moving higher. All right. No, I can't. I can't. I don't have time to, to come to you, hey, Jim. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> It's my Sorry. final trade. That's why I spoke as Makes long as I final did. Trade. Oh, it's your final trade. Okay, touche. All right, let me, let me get to John. John's got unusual activity. Doc, what do you have for us today? Boeing. No, <laughs> Scott, I don't. I, but I do have an airline, and it is Delta. DAL, 10,000 of the September 45 calls. That's a million share equivalent. Pretty big trade for an airline right now. Uh, the stock was 42.10 or something like that this morning. It's moved higher since then. I bought the calls uh, that were at the money right around that 42 strike, sold upside calls. Second one, quickly, Scott, Oracle, 15,000. So that's 1.5 million share equivalent of the this Friday expiration, 85 calls. The stock was just over 84. I saw moments ago it's traded through 85 and is moving higher. Somebody places a pretty big bet that it goes through 85 and perhaps to 86, 87 this week, Scott. All right, Doc, thank you for that. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll do final trades next. Okay, final trade time. Pharma Jim, now is your chance. What do you got? <laughs> okay, okay. Well, I don't want to tweak my uh, multiple personality friend too hard, but uh, Boeing is my final trade, both because of the fundamentals, right? Yeah. The fundamentals of uh, increasing orders, increasing delivery, increasing air travel. And then there's a technical factor that whenever Steve throws in the towel on one of my trades, it's a huge tell that it's going up. So long Boeing, that (laughs) one's easy. Was this actually your pick or did you make this your pick after Steve said what he said about trimming Boeing? Steve handed me a gift on a platter, and I'm taking it with a thank you. All right, Steve, what's yours? Moderna. Moderna announced today their flu vaccine actually into four variants of the flu, including COVID. This is a technology platform. This is not just a biotech company, definitely not a COVID company. And a PSA, sell all your Chinese ADRs. Save yourself a lot of grief and money. All right. Yeah, we'll see where those stocks are going to go in, in, in the days ahead. Been a rough go for sure. All right, Joe, uh, Jim, you're channeling a little farmer, Jim, too, I, I, I hear. Oh, this final trade is specifically for my good friend, Jimmy. Alaska Air broke above the 200 day moving average back in November. Never looked back since. Guess what? It's challenging that 200 day moving average today. If there ever was a point of reference to buy it against, this is the spot. Okay. There you go, Jimmy. All right. Thank you for that. Jenny. Attaboy. My, most re- my second most recent purchase is New York Community Bank, which has a 6% dividend yield, very New York-focused, which has been bet against. I don't think you bet against New York City. 
and they will do well whether interest rates stay flat or go up. The analyst community is starting to get on board. B. Riley actually upgraded it last week with a $19 price target. All right, don't bet against the Big Apple for sure. John Najarian, last to you, quick. Macau with Melco, Scott. It's $10 under the highs like that stock All at right. this level. Good stuff. Thanks, everybody. The exchange starts now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.